welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Managing Editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB Editor at Large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Kate and Medea. Hi. Hello. Today, we have a conversation with the legendary... Fran Leibowitz, who, I mean, it was just a personal thrill to talk to her. I've admired her work and her kind of acerbic wit for a long, long time. And she proved to deliver all of that in this interview. If we could dedicate the show to talking to Jewish New Yorkers. Yes. <laughs> um, I would. I would do it. This was such a pleasure and so much fun. And it's an honor, too, just because Fran Leibowitz has always stood tall to me as a yeah. public intellectual, mm-hmm. as a a very smart woman as a speaker and a, a writer. And this also gave me the chance to read some of her work, which I'd never done before. And that was very fun. Great style too. Great Just have to throw style. that out. Yeah. yeah. Nice. I like her uniform. It's very elegant. Kate, what's her uniform? Do you know? She likes to wear a jacket, a shirt, a dress shirt, some pants and She wears great denim jeans. Yeah, she wears great jeans boots. and yeah, and leather boots. Real style icon. Yeah. She's great. I also, I think what I personally like about her which is something I hate about myself, is that unlike me, she like gets right to the point all the time. There's no like suffering fools. There's none of that. She just says exactly what she wants to say and says it cleanly and succinctly. Kate, had you read her work before? Here and there, but I actually haven't read either of her collections and I would like to get them now. Yeah. Definitely worth taking a read. All right, let's get right to that conversation. Let's do it. Today, we're excited to have on the phone with us Fran Leibowitz. Fran is a legendary writer and public intellectual who often has drawn comparisons to Dorothy Parker for her acerbic wit and New York sensibility. She is noted for her social commentary, her cutting, astute observation of modern life among the literati and glitterati alike, and her iconic sartorial style. She was also the subject of a Martin Scorsese documentary that followed her called Public Speaking. Welcome to the show, Fran. Thank you. All right, so... There are many things that we can ask you about, but I thought, you know, let's just get started on current events because we have a lot happening this week. (laughs) Have you been following the Kavanaugh hearings? I have been following it as much as possible. I mean, you know, it does change minute to minute, but I'm pretty up on it, I have to say. Yeah. What are your thoughts about our current, well, the hearings and also the increased attention on the Me Too movement and the sexual assault stories that are coming forward in the political arena? I don't think there's enough attention on it. You know, I mean, I've done numerous interviews, you know, in advance of the speaking days I'm doing, and a couple of men have said, do you think it's gone too far? And, uh, like, it hasn't even begun. That doesn't mean they're not trying to stop it already. Of course they are. That's what it means, has it gone too far? That means he thinks it's gone too far. I don't think it's gone far enough, and so I have been following it. I mean, I never thought about this guy. I never heard of this guy. You know, I mean, before he was nominated. But here is my general position on this. I believe all women. You have to prove to me she's lying. And the reason I do is because I am a woman. But more importantly, I was a girl. Okay? And so, I mean, maybe it's different if you're young now. You know, it must be better. You know, because, first of all, younger men are a lot better. They're not perfect. They're not women. But they're better. (laughs) They're much better than (laughs) men my age or, you know, even older. But if you were a girl when I was a girl, this was almost every single man, every single time, if you were trying to get a job. I try to explain to people that really one problem with men in understanding this is that they think it has something to do with romance, you know, Mm -hmm. or their own sex lives, 
or mm-hmm. even sex. You know, it really has to do with work. And I think that that is the thing that people should emphasize because maybe that would make them understand a little more. Not that I really care how, you know, what a profound understanding they have of it, but some of the things that people say, even people that you think would not say these things, just show me that men just don't get this. One of the things that, for obvious reasons, that this hearing has drawn allusions to is the Anita Hill hearings during the confirmation of Clarence Thomas which I remember vividly. Is this different? There's a part of me, right, the optimist that always wants to believe that we're on some kind of progressive arc. But there's a way in which I see the kind of vilification that Anita Hill went through and the kind of immediate doubt of her story that seems resonant here in the current and emerging stories around Kavanaugh. So I'm wondering, how do you see the difference between those two kind of very similar situations? Well, I don't think, I mean, they're similar, you know, in, in some way, but they're not, they're not identical. For me, I have been telling people for years, people who like Joe Biden, for instance, who liked him as the vice president because Obama liked him and, you know, who thought he should be the president. And for years I've been saying, don't you remember the Anita Hill hearings? I said this to people who should remember it. I didn't say this to people who are 20. <laughs> so to me, you know, lately they have been running some of those hearings. And you see Joe Biden. And it was morally grotesque what he did. And I never forgave him. And I never liked him. And I never wanted to be the president. I don't want to be anything. Because he was just as bad as those Republicans. He was repulsive. Okay, so, you know, to me, the upside is, even in his wildest delusions, of which all these guys, you know, were just saturated with, do I imagine that now that everybody has seen this stuff one million times recently, that he doesn't think he's going to be the president, no matter how much he feels the world might need a 78-year-old white man to be the president now. (laughs) (laughs) But in a way, of course, it's not like the Anita Hill hearings, because Anita Hill was an adult when this happened. Mm. She talked about it. It was something that happened at work. She was there. There was still this veneer of procedure, at least. You know, they followed, the Senate followed procedure. They're not following procedure now at all. Not that I'm an expert, you know, on congressional procedure, but, I mean, this is just like, it seems to be just a free-for-all. They do whatever they want. Naked and craven, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. You know, I mean, the fact that Kavanaugh went on television last night. He went on Fox News. Now, I mean, as I said, I'm not a, a scholar of this, but I did hear a woman who is saying it's not even legal for him to do that. So I believe... I think there's two, or there might be three women so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I believe them. If there's 30 women, I believe them. But if you ask me, do I think this is going to matter? I don't. I don't think it's a matter of whether the Republicans believe them or not. They don't care. You're famous as a social commentator. I'm wondering if after the election, after this kind of heightened state of political discord, you feel more impelled to you know, take on that role in a political sense? You know, you're a public intellectual, but have you felt like you also need to comment on politics more than you did in the past? Or do you feel like that's just all part of social commentary already? This is just everybody. In other words, you know, I've been doing this since 1978, okay? Speaking dates, I've been doing also since 1978. And always during presidential election years, I'd get a lot of questions about politics. Okay, but in general, I was not basically interested in politics. I was basically thinking about politics all the time. But since the campaign, the last campaign, Mm. it's all anyone talks about, including myself. I mean, I went to Australia. The first questions were about Trump. Everybody is, I hate to use the word obsessed because people use it now to mean being interested in, you know, minutia. But people are, you can't not think about it. 
I've been angry since birth. Okay, <laughs> I've never been a serene person. But I live with a level of anger now that in a less disciplined person would be leading to physical mayhem. With that in mind, I mean, do you have escapes? I know you're obviously a big reader and perhaps books are the escape from this kind of constant rage and the constant political turmoil that we have going on. But do you have other forms of escape? Nothing beats books for not being real life. Okay, this is why I've always loved to read. You know, there was never a time in my life from the age I was, you know, whenever I learned to read when I was like five years old until the present time during which many historic events have taken place that reading wasn't better than life. Even during periods where my own life was pretty good, it was never as good as reading. <laughs> so, you know, and, you know, I'm sorry to say that. On the other hand, I can't imagine what life would be. So I will say that at the very beginning of the Trump presidency, I really, for the first time in my life, was not reading a lot of fiction, which I've always done. But I did, like, calm down to a point where I could resume my reading of fiction. And so I definitely, reading is the escape. Reading is a drug for me. It's an addiction for me. So obviously, whatever people's addictions are, they're hitting them a little harder now. <laughs> and so, yes, I have definitely find that reading is, a, is an escape from this. The only problem is that I never read these kind of political books, you know, like uh, Michael Wolff's book or James Comey's book. I would never think to read a book like that because, let's face it, they are not books. But I did read Michael Wolff's book. I read as much of James Comey's books, you know, as you could possibly read, I mean. But I did not read Woodward's Woodward's book. book. Yeah, and that is because, you know, A, I mean, the man is not exactly scintillating. (laughs) And also, I've never really liked him. I don't mean personally, I don't know him, but I mean, so I stopped reading these books, which I think is kind of a good sign for my own life. Maybe I also stopped reading them because you don't even have to, because people talk about them nonstop, or you read about them in the newspaper nonstop, so that that, I would not call that reading, by the way. And I would not call them books. So as soon as I finish those books, they can't get out of here fast enough. Actually, oh, yeah. Frank, can we talk about that? Because one of the things that I feel... Now, I'm obviously much younger than you are, so I don't have the... Everybody is. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> not a read. But I'm saying that it's like I don't have maybe the tactile sense of the cycles that sometimes the culture goes through. But one thing that strikes me today is the way in which we consume, and I find this quite frightening and troubling, that we consume news and events of great importance as if they are entertainment. For example, this morning I saw the clip from Trump talking to the UN, and they're laughing at him while he says, you know, in his kind of slurred speech, doing the best job we ever can and greatest in two years, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then I kept thinking, you know, the humorous part of me is like, oh, well, this must be particularly fun for the GOP after years of saying that metaphorically the world was laughing at Obama. Now they have their own president who is literally being laughed at by the world. But then part of it is like it's not even funny. It's real life. And I wonder if there's a part of us that culturally that is treating too much of this as if it's just entertainment or kind of for consumption. Does that make sense? Yes, but it's not our fault. Okay, so it is the fault, basically, of the television networks and also the cable networks, because that's how they covered the campaign. And Mm. they covered Trump relentlessly because he drove ratings. And we found it entertaining because it was entertaining. But it's not supposed to be entertaining. And we know that, you know, but we did it anyway. I mean, it's like, you know, I hate to quote Les Moonves, especially at this moment, (laughs) but... 
he did say, if you may or may not recall this, during the campaign when people criticized the networks for covering Trump so much, he said, well, he may be bad for the country, but he's good for CBS. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Okay, and that was a despicable comment. Okay, and I actually said to him once, what country is CBS in, Les? If it's bad for the country and you're running a television network, don't run it. What did he say out of curiosity? He laughed, you know, he thought I was amusing. Very often people think that I'm not serious because I can be amusing. But also, it doesn't matter to someone like that what I say. (laughs) It makes no difference. He doesn't care what I say. He cares, you know, how much money CBS was making. I mean, I'll tell you one thing. I don't know if this is true in California, but I'm seeing something on television I have never seen in my life because I'm certain it never existed. They are running ads for Brett Kavanaugh like he's running for something. Have you seen this? No, I haven't. I haven't seen it. Okay, so this is an astonishing thing for more than one reason. One reason being for why are they running ads for someone you can't vote for? You know, because truthfully, if I believe if the country could vote for Brett Kavanaugh, he would not be right, Supreme Court of judge. But the other thing is, in New York City, is the number one most expensive media market. We hardly ever see political ads here. We never see them, almost never, for the presidential elections because they're too expensive and because New York's not going to vote for a Republican. We see them for local elections, but we don't see them a lot. You don't see a lot of television advertising here politically. Mm. It's too expensive, except for Cuomo, who had $80 zillion to spend. (laughs) But it's unusual to see a lot of television advertising. But for Supreme Court justice, it's unique and also morally revolting. You have such a strong moral center, and I've heard you say variations of that you're always right or you your morals haven't changed and you've always been right. And that's... I think that's really remarkable. I'm wondering where you think you get that strong sense of morality from. Is that from your family? I guess just because it's very simple. I mean, I have to say, although, of course, I'm loath to say that I was wrong about Trump. I thought he had no chance to win. So this is like, you know, I spent the year of the campaign going all around the country, speaking to literally thousands of people, saying over and over again, zero chance. He has zero (laughs) chance of winning. And I said that because I believed it. I absolutely believed it. And I have to say that for at least a month or more after the election, every time I left my apartment, people in the street would scream at me, you were wrong. You were wrong. (laughs) I know. I know. I'm sorry. Believe me, I'm sorry. So I know you didn't mean right or wrong in that way. But I also have always believed that I'm always right in that way. So now I have to say I've always been right except for this one time. And it would have been better, of course, if I had been wrong every other time and right this time. But to me, truthfully, right and wrong are very simple things. They're really simple things. Yes, and it's true that when I was a child, I was taught this as was every other child. I mean, it wasn't some spectacular, unusual way of raising a child. The difference is I believed it. You know, I really believe that this was, and so I still believe it. So I do have this same really childish sense of injustice. Mm. I still, I don't say it aloud anymore, but I am constantly saying to myself, that's not fair. That's not fair. Now, when I was a child, which was in the 1950s, kids said this to each other all the time. That's not fair. And that was a horrible thing to say to someone. You're unfair. So now, of course, I don't even think this concept exists. (laughs) Yeah. But these things are really simple. No, this isn't fair. Don't do it. What's her name? I can't think of her name because I can't bear her, of course. Sarah Huckabee Smith or whatever her name is. Sanders. Yeah. Sanders. I like Smith Smith better. Yeah. She, who never gets three words out without talking about God, something which I'd like to point out is unconstitutional. She always says, well, you know, I 
I believe that to God, or that's God. I always think, you know, I'm not an expert on the Bible. I've never read it, and I don't intend to. There are far better books to read. But I do have a real recollection of the Ten Commandments. And thou shalt not bear false witness is mm. right on that list, and that is your job is all day long you lie. Yeah. So I'd like to know, like, what religion is that? I'm surprised you've never read the Bible. I've never read the Bible. I've never read the Old Testament, the New Testament. I haven't read it. I have no interest in religion. I know that's a horrible thing. I know it's supposed to be rich and resonant with literature, but I just am not interested. I never liked fairy tales. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. You know what, Freya, just as a quick change of topic, and not because I want to get off the religion thing. I think I'm very much on the same page as you are. But I wonder if we could talk a little bit about New York. Because obviously you are very much identified, you know, you got your start at Andy Warhol's Interview Magazine, and you've kind of been a huge and central part of New York media culture for as long as I can remember. And I actually, two out of three of us were like lifelong New Yorkers for a while. Yeah, I was um, raised in Queens. Before defecting. (laughs) I had family always in New York and then lived there entirely for about 10 to 12 years. And every time I went back... It seemed like what I could only call like the museum the museumification <laughs> of New York. Like it felt like I was seeing not a place where people lived, but a place where you look at fancy baubles. And this was especially true to me every time I'd get off the L stop, the Bedford L in Williamsburg. Yes. Let and- me tell you guys how shocked my <laughs> mom was when she picked me up in Williamsburg. Oh, really? Yeah. She could not believe it. And it's been there for 10 years or yeah. probably more. But she was, this was incredible to her. She was like, there's stores. There's a hair salon. This is amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. It's once I saw the guy playing a didgeridoo for like quarters or something, I was like, <laughs> I got to be over this. But Fran, can you tell us about like, where is New York going now? And do you think it can be saved? Which I guess is a tendentious way of asking you where it's going. This seems new just because it's worse. But mm. truthfully, I remember... When Soho first started, you know, when people started buying lofts in Soho, right. or living in Soho, my grandmother, my father's mother, was alive. When she came to this country from Hungary as like a 12 or 13-year-old girl, she worked in a sweatshop on Green Street. Mm. And I tried to explain to her. Soho, of course, it was totally impossible. You have to have some <laughs> frame of reference for this, you know. But so that was like 1971. Yeah. Okay, so has it gotten worse? Yes. Here's what I believe. Things, by which I mean material things, cities, cities are material things, furniture, fabrics, things like that, they've all gotten worse. But life has gotten better for lots of people. There are certain people for whom life has gotten so immeasurably better. So yes, New York has gotten worse. All cities have gotten worse Mm. because they're too expensive. They are too expensive. It's as simple as that. They're too expensive. All cities, I mean, not all cities, but a very large number of cities, especially the cities you might want to go to, have been completely taken over by very rich people. Very rich people are almost invariably people who are in the money business. Yeah. These are never people that are of any interest to anyone. They don't do anything interesting. They are a blight on the landscape. They ruin every city. This is all over the world, no matter where you go. People who live in that city complain about it. Even though to you, I was in Madrid a couple months ago, Madrid seems empty to me. If you live in New York, Madrid seems like, is this a holiday, I said? You know, (laughs) it's like you can walk anywhere. I went to the Prado. There were like six people there. But every single person I met there who lived in Madrid complained about the tourists. 
Okay, because <laughs> that's a frequent complaint be, of yours. There were also. too many for them. <laughs> you know, so that there's numerous reasons for this. Everyone knows what the reasons are. Cheap air travel is the number one reason. And so this is what happens. I do, I used to think at a certain point, every single person in the world would have been to New York and they can leave and they won't come anymore. But this turned out not to be true because what I forgot about was the new people who kept getting born. So, you know, I've done my best not to contribute to the new people who are getting born, but other people keep having children. So yes, New York is definitely worse than it used to be, but still I wouldn't think of living anywhere else. People always say, if you were young, would you move to New York? So, you know, to the question, if I was young, would I do anything? If I was young, I'd be a different person. So, you know, if I was young now, I could never even think to afford to live in New York. Right, 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 right. You know, it would be so out of the question. But I always point out to people that even when I came to New York in like 1970, and even though New York was going bankrupt apparently, although I had no idea what that meant, since if you have no money, a city going bankrupt is meaningless. (laughs) It doesn't mean anything to you, yeah. So, you know, but it was still the most expensive place to live in the United States. It was still overpriced. It was still hard to make the rent. Not as hard as it is now. Not on the planet. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Fran Lebowitz, and we'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. here with Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at the LA Review of Books and my co-host on the LARB Radio Hour. And Eric is here to gush about a book that he's really loving right now. What's loved, the book? Yeah, loved now in the past tense because I finished it. But it was one of those books, uh, I finished it yesterday, and it's one of those books that I didn't want to finish because, you know, when it's like you've got the last 50 pages and it's like you've raced through the preceding like 250 or 300 and the last 50 pages you just slowly like moving your way through because you don't want to leave that world and the characters that was this book okay what's it called and who's it by okay so the book is the song of achilles by madeline miller i think it's a brilliant way to turn your day job into like a fantastic piece of writing so tell us more what does that mean it's song of achilles madeline miller basically she got her bachelor's and master's in classics and then she spent years kind of teaching and tutoring Latin, Greek, and Shakespeare, right? So then, and this book is from 2011, she writes uh, basically historical romance about Achilles and Patroclus. His, well... The history is a little vague. The the source documents best, best in terms friends of like, they are called in the yeah, Iliad, I believe. But they yeah exactly. Yeah. So Homer has like a less homoerotic sense of their relationship, but other subsequent interpretations and tales of Achilles and Patroclus have said that in fact like they or suggested that they were lovers. Right. Miller goes full on like they are absolutely lovers. Seems and, likely as Achilles grieves in quite an intense way. Right. Patro- well, I, I just gave away the ending. Patroclus right. is killed. Well, we all know the ending. Like, okay. no spoiler alerts. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, but there's also the fact that uh, Alexander the Great, his mourning of Hephaestion is very similar to the mourning that Achilles is said to go through at the death of Patroclus. And uh, I think Alexander also made like a special stop at the tomb of Achilles 
I believe. I'm not a historian. I haven't read it that recently. So there's like a lot of other historical okay. factors to, to suggest that in any event. So the book is told from the perspective of Patroclus, and it begins when he and Achilles, I believe, are early teens and how they become paired together. And then as they kind of grow up, both as lovers and men, and it ends obviously in the Trojan War. It's pulpy, quick, sexy, but not vulgar, I guess. It's not explicit. There's a lot of wind chiming, you know, kind of like panning away from the bed. But it's just infinitely readable. It's really, really fun. And the thing that I think is brilliant is that Miller has taken all this stuff that she spent so long researching and teaching people about and took effectively a story that we all already know that we love and then tells it from the perspective of a minor character, but brings to bear all of the historical knowledge that she has to really make these characters feel alive and really make you feel that you are in that world. So it is 100% recommend not a maybe highbrow book, but definitely a great beach read, Shay's Lounge by the Pool read. All books are welcome here. Eric, what's the title and the author again? It's The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. Thank you so much. It sounds great. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK. We now return to our conversation with Fran Leibowitz. milieu, right, could, like, I mean, this was even true for me when I was able to, like, on a $30,000 a year editorial assistant salary, still live in the East Village, which now is, like, unimaginable, right? So it's like, how does that impact art in the city? Of course, it changes everything. But when I was young, you know, if you made $30,000 a year, you were rich, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was young, I never made more than, like, $3,500 a year. Okay. Now, I also have to point out that we lived horribly. You know, I mean, horribly. Not as horrible as kids do now, because now they live all together. That would have been out of the question for me. You know, <laughs> they have roommates, and, you know, they live in this way that I think of it as childish. I would, I've never had a roommate. I never would. But, <clears throat> you know, uh, yes, it makes it horrible. And as long ago as probably 1980, I started complaining about this. So, you know, I definitely could see this happening. So it is very bad. You know, it, it will not, you know, one thing is that it will not stay this way. And how I know this is because it didn't stay that way. So, you know, <laughs> it will change. In what way? I do not know. Mm. You know, if I could see the future, I would be a lottery winner. <laughs> um, I think it is, this is true everywhere. This is one of the reasons a lot of my friends who had children, um, which were not the majority of my friends, a lot of these kids, they moved to L.A. This would have been unthinkable. Yeah. When I was young. Now, they moved to L.A. for, you know, a couple reasons. No matter how expensive people in L.A. think L.A. has gotten, it's still a lot cheaper than New York. You know, a lot. And it's, as you know, a lot easier to live there. You know, it it doesn't, you don't have to plot out for 10 hours, you know, how to get your dry cleaning. So it's a lot cheaper. And, you know, when people say, you know, you used to complain so much about going to L.A., but now you don't. Don't you think L.A. has gotten better? And I think, yes, L.A. has gotten better and New York has gotten worse. And those things are connected. So L.A. is not as bad as it used to be, partially because so many people from New York moved there. <laughs> but, it is, it's true. but it is still not a city. You know, it is not a city. It's too spread out. 
So, you know, I would not like to live in L.A. I don't care what other people do. They're free to move there. I'm not in charge. But tourism is, is, uh, is a horrible blight on the world landscape. <laughs> yes. You know, people should just stay home. It would be. You know, it really angers me. Sometimes I yell at them. Luckily, they can't understand me because I only speak English. But if I was in charge of who comes to New York, if I had the dream job of standing at the border of New York City, I would only allow in immigrants. You could only come here if you're going to live here. Because, <laughs> I love you know, that, yeah. <laughs> immigrants make the culture. Mm-hmm. But tourists destroy it. But I'm not in charge of who comes here. Well, this is this is a little bit more on the personal end of the spectrum in terms of the questions. But you were mentioning living alone, no roommates. You had decided not to have kids, I assume. Um, no, no, I didn't. First of all, I did not decide not to have kids. It never occurred to me. <laughs> okay? Yeah. I mean, you know, like deciding is something where there's options, like maybe I will, you know, maybe I'll have the salmon, maybe I'll have the salt. That's, you know, deciding. It never even occurred to me. And first of all, it, it did not occur to anyone gay when I was young to have children. Yeah. You know, it just didn't occur to them. It wasn't, you know, it just, it wasn't in anyone's mind. Or it may have been in someone's mind, but no one expressed it. But it certainly wasn't in my mind. You know, I, I never even, I never gave it a passing thought. I can't have any children. I mean, I never thought about it. And did you think about marriage or long-term partnership when you never. were Never. I never, it never crossed my mind. Okay? And it did, you know, a couple, I mean, more than a couple times, numerous times, people who are young said to me, thank you, friend, I know you fought your whole life for gay marriage. That is just not true. I never never thought about it. It never occurred to me. And when it first became an issue, I was flabbergasted that anyone wanted this. Mm. So, I mean, I I just was like, are you kidding me? You know, and it, it, like, it became an issue, at least in my mind, I could be wrong, around the same time that gays in the military, people started fighting for that. And I thought, what is wrong with you? The two most confining institutions in the culture, Mm. the military and marriage. These were, it, when it was really hard to be gay, these were the two upsides. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, you'd have to get married and you have to go in the military. So I was completely flabbergasted by this. And I did say at the time, and we didn't vote for it here. They voted for it in some places. It was on the ballot. I always said, you know, if it was on the ballot, I'd vote for it. I know a lot of people want it, but not me. Fran, let me ask you just a quick follow-up to that. Is, um, what do you think of contemporary gay culture? Because obviously I'm between you and like the new people coming up now and it sometimes is befuddling and, you know, endearing, you know, to see how much easier their lives are. But also something always feels to me like it's being missed. This is the price for acceptance. Mm. Okay, so, you know, everything has a price. That's the price, you know. So it's better for people, obviously, not to live sad, you know, hidden lives, obviously, but it's worse for the culture. So, yeah, because that sadness and, gave us camp it, it and drag. It depends what you care and, about. Yeah. I'm sorry? I'm sorry. So, I was just saying that sadness gave us camp and drag and all of that. And art and literature. Mm-hmm. And um, so that doesn't exist anymore. And also, that also changed cities, by the way, because it used to be that if you were gay and you were, you know, wanting to live as someone who's gay, you know, which most people did not, I'd like to point out, mm-hmm. um, then you had to move to a city. Yeah. Okay, so, and you moved to either, when I was young, New York or San Francisco, okay? In San Francisco, you know, was a, a place where the people who moved there, they were just gay. <laughs> so, you know, 
But in New York, you had to be something other than just gay. <laughs> it was really too hard here to be just simply gay. So the gay culture of San Francisco is very different from New York. Mm. You know, very different. And I, I'm not saying there were no gay people anywhere else. You know, but those were the two places that people moved to. Now you can be gay in Minnesota. And so I think that I was no longer, because it's gone on for so long, you know, I was pretty surprised to discover that, like, the average homosexual was more average than homosexual. So it turns out (laughs) that if people are allowed to be gay without, you know, risking uh, prison or, you know, a horrible life, they turn out to be just as boring as everyone else. Mm. (laughs) That's true. You um, are really, you know, you're incredibly known. You've written a couple books, and um, you talk a lot about your difficulty with writing. I wonder if you've ever pursued treatment for that, like, seen psychologists. I know you're friends with tons of writers. Um, people tried to cure you of, of your writer's block. <laughs> well, when I was young, because this goes back really much longer time than you can imagine. So when I was young, after my first book came out when I was 27 and I had money, I went to a psychiatrist for a while, actually for quite a while, with the idea that this would in some way help me uh, to be able to write, but it did not. <laughs> so that that is really all I can say about that. Okay, so I you went to a psychologist that. to talk about your personal life, not your writing problems. Well, you know, even at that young age, I really felt my personal problems were none of his business. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, and, you know, at a certain point, of course, when I was young, I was much more interested in myself than I am now. I think if you have any level of sanity at a certain point, you've thought about yourself enough. You know, I just don't think about myself that much anymore in that way. I certainly don't and had not for many years. Why do I do this or why? I just don't think about it because the chances that I'm going to change in some profound way now (laughs) seem to me zero. Um, So, you know, I I mean, people give me various, um, I'm going to say remedies, but why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? So obviously, I think it's safe to say that no one would imagine any of these things worked. (laughs) But you you are currently writing... um couple of things, right? A novel, a couple novels. Well, I have this novel that, you know, I started, I would say, I'm not exactly sure, but I believe I, start, I, I, believe I started writing it around 1982 or something like that. Wow. I have half of this novel written. Um, that might have been done by 1984. <laughs> um, I have half of another book written. They're unrelated, except they're both by me. Um, I have a few times tried to convince my publisher that two halves of a book is an entire book although they're unrelated, <laughs> and that perhaps we could put them together, and it would be like um, when I was a kid, sometimes comic books would have one side, you turned it around, then there was a, the other half on the other side. Right. And we might publish in that way, but this has not really gained favor. <laughs> That's a shame. <laughs> I read, I think somewhat recently, about your routine, but this is, this is an old piece where you, 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 it sounds wonderful. You stay in bed, you order in, um, you stay in bed some more. Is, what's your routine like these days? You know, I don't, I, I don't know what piece uh, you're referring to, but I don't really have that much of a routine. I mean, I suppose I, I, if I'm allowed to stay home, you know, then I have more of a routine, you know, which is basically um, when I get up, which could be at any time, and because I hardly sleep, I, I have a, I'm a lifelong insomniac. Mm-hmm. In my older age, I tend to, to get out of bed. I used to just stay in bed, but now I get out of bed. And I drink coffee, and I read. I read as soon as I get up. I have, like, a habit. I mean, it's not a rule, although I have many rules in my apartment, uh, which I I tend to read nonfiction in the morning, you know, like, Mm. you know, newspapers, magazines, or nonfiction books. But that is not, it's not a rule, as I said. 
you know, I try not to, I, my, I try not to go out to lunch because I really hate going out to lunch. It takes the whole day. You know, <laughs> and I, I, so I really try not to go out to lunch. I try really not to be outside during the day. You know, I don't succeed at this all the time. In fact, I would say maybe half the time I succeed at this. I really don't like to be outside in the daytime. It's too crowded and, you know, it's too light. It's just not for me. But I don't, you know, as I said, succeed at this all the time. So I wouldn't say I have that much of a routine. I would like to. I'll consider it. <laughs> and Well, actually, that brings me to another question. I, had, I think it was maybe a talk that you gave at the Y a long time ago, but you'd mentioned magazines being a sort of a blight on the culture and that they aren't worth reading. People should just read books. I wholeheartedly agree, though I produce one. Are, I mean, now that the magazine landscape in New York in particular has changed so drastically, almost, I mean, maybe almost within the past year or two with the Village Voice going, um, I know interviews started back up again last week or something, but well, one, what magazines do you still read? And what what's your relationship to the sort of media landscape these days? Well, I get, I, I get uh, the New York Review of Books. I get the London Review of Books. I'm interested that we have all these reviews of books, yet no one seems to read books. But um, <laughs> I get the New Yorker. I get I get New York Magazine. I'm sure I get some other magazines. I get I get Art Forum and Book Forum because they send it to me. Some of these they just send me. Yeah. Mm. You know. So I'm I'm not really sure. I'm sure there's some other magazines I get. And right before you called, I because I'm you know I wouldn't say packing because that would be way too efficient since I'm leaving tomorrow to go to Vancouver. But I was getting together the stuff I'm taking to read, and I saw that as usual I have like the last three you know London Reviews books I haven't even opened yet. So I, I it's the same at my house. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know the New Yorker seems to me to be a daily. Yeah. You know, yes. I know it comes out every week, but it seems actually to come out every day. Um, <laughs> so I have a couple of these, and I find that I tend to read them on planes, although I, I read them at home too sometimes. The problem with magazines is, uh, I mean, that all these magazines are going out of business or about to, is really the fault of magazine publishers. They did not have to. You know, it is not like newspapers. You know, uh, I mean, newspapers, you know, I'm not sure I'm accurate, but I, I know I've read this, that uh, the average age of a newspaper reader is 55. You know, if the average ra- age of an apple eater was 55, no one would plant a tree. <laughs> so, you know, but magazines, kids like magazines yeah. because they like them as objects. And I know this because you cannot believe the amazing variety of stuff that gets sent here. You cannot imagine how it seems to me, I'm probably wrong, that there's something like, you know, 1,000 gay magazines in Sweden. Despite the fact that Sweden is the size of my living room. Um, so kids start these magazines. They don't start newspapers. Most of these magazines, of course, you know, are, and some of them are very opulent physically. You know, so this means that some rich, you know, kid or someone with a rich parent or something, you know, gives them the money and they start these magazines. So the magazines that are going out of business now um, or about to go out of business could have stayed in business if they had paid attention. And they didn't, so it's their fault. And when something is someone's fault, I don't feel sorry for them. Yeah. This is true even when something is my fault. Then I don't feel sorry for myself. <laughs> yeah. So returning back to some of the themes that we started with, you know, Donald Trump's a New Yorker, you're a New Yorker. What do you think about Trump as a New Yorker? And how did that kind of work into his appeal to the country, if at all, do you think? Trump is not a New Yorker. We refuse to accept that. Okay? I refuse to accept that the way that, you know, I always refuse to accept that Roy Cohn was a Jew. I refuse to accept that Trump was a New Yorker. 
Okay? I always said, even, you know, 30 years ago, the best thing about Donald Trump is that he's not Jewish. So, <laughs> you know, um, Hillary Clinton won New York City nine to one. Mm. Yeah. Okay? Nine to one. Hillary Clinton won the Upper East Side, which in presidential elections almost invariably votes for Republicans. Right. No one in New York voted for Donald Trump except in Staten Island, which I refuse to believe is New York. Ooh. So, uh, <laughs> and that is because we knew who he was. Yeah. We knew he was a cheap hustler, period. That's all he was. No one in New York even thought he was rich. And because he wasn't really rich until he became the president. Okay, this is one of the unique things he's brought to American life, which is, you know, incredible money corruption at the federal level, which never happened before. It's like having Imelda Marcos be the president. You know, so, you know, uh, he lost here. No one ever paid any attention to him here except as this joke. You know, I mean, <clears throat> people asked me when he was elected, had I met him? I couldn't even remember. <laughs> Who cared? No one cared about him. The, the, no one even thought he was a real estate developer. Yeah. The other real estate developers, not exactly your finest group of people. <laughs> they, they looked down on him. Yeah. Well, I mean, so but okay. to that end, like the other part of that is that how do you think we get out of this? I believe, and this could be, you know, the one example of Fran is a cockeyed optimist. I believe he's an anomaly. I mean, I do not not believe that he's not damaged, you know, the institutions of, of uh, American democracy, you know, perhaps forever, and certainly for my lifetime. That has absolutely been the case, mm. you know. But, you know, I do not believe that he is going to be some sort of standard you know, for the presidency. I just don't. You know, how it ends, I don't know. My only real interest is how soon it ends. Right, you know, right. You know, I, you know I, people say, what do you think is going to happen? I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I don't know. The problem, I mean, the problem, there's millions. One of the myriad problems of the Republicans is they do not care about anything. Mm. They don't care. Mm. You know, it's like with Kavanaugh. It isn't whether they believe him or they don't. They just don't care. Yeah. You know, it's about, like, Trump with the Russians. It isn't whether they believe it or they don't. They don't care. There could be a movie of uh, Putin stuffing, you know, $20 bills into Trump's G-string, and they wouldn't care. Yeah. What a yeah. disgusting movie. They don't movie. care. <laughs> yeah, it's a disgusting movie. But they don't care. They only want certain things, these Republicans. You know, the biggest thing that they wanted, because the people who own these Republican uh, members of Congress, they wanted this tax cut for the rich. Yeah. Yep. You know, that was the number one thing. If this whole thing blows up tomorrow, they got the big thing they wanted. You know, <clears throat> there is a segment of this party that cares only about making abortion illegal. Period. That's all they care about. Mm -hmm. They care about nothing else. Okay? This part of the party I found particularly repulsive. Okay? Because it's very hard for me to imagine, and it, I've never believed, that this concern about abortion has a thing to do with babies. Mm -hmm. You know, this has nothing to do with babies. This is the party that invented baby jail. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Invented baby jail. I mean, the, the worst dictators on the planet had not thought, let's put infants in prison. They had never thought of that. Right? These Republicans thought of that. So the, the idea that these people have a particular concern for babies is absurd. Abortion is about women. It always has mm -hmm. been. They have a particular concern about women not having any choices in life. And so that's what they care about. You know, those are the only two things Republicans care about. You know, and they're going to get them, I think. You know, they already got this taxing. My, if for some reason 
the Trump presidency ends, you know, I do not believe it will end impeachment, but maybe he decides, this is too much trouble, I'd rather go back to that pile of junk I built on Fifth Avenue and stay there. Right. You know, right. that strikes me as a more likely thing. But if that happened, or if the Democrats take, you know, <clears throat> uh, uh, the House, I know some people think they're going to take the Senate, that would be delightful, I'm not, I don't believe that's the case, but um, I would be... The thing I most don't want the Democrats to do is to start impeachment proceedings. I want the Democrats to, because that will consume every bit of attention. All I want is the Democrats just ignore him and try to roll back some of this horrible stuff he did. Okay, so on that kind of angry optimism um, for the possibility of change and not knowing exactly what the timeline is, um, we're going to have to conclude this interview. Fran, it has been a pleasure, pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much, and have a, have a good trip to Los Angeles. Thank you. The second annual Lambda Lit Fest hits Los Angeles for a week of events featuring LGBTQ writers, artists, and community members from September 29th to October 6th. All events are free and open to the public, including a live taping of the LARB Radio Hour in conversation with Patrice Cullors, author of When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir, at 6 p.m. Saturday, October 6th at Fiesta Hall in Plummer Park. LitFest is also running a select number of workshops on everything from writing LGBTQIA fiction to manifestos and getting started in new media. For more information, including a festival schedule and RSVP options for select workshops and events, see lambdalitfest.org. That's L-A-M-B-D-A litfest.org. See you there. been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Thank you.